No, no, it's all for you. Zechariah 9, 9 through 17. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore you to double. For I have bent Judah as my bow, I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the, and tread down the sling stones. And they shall drink and war as if drunk with wine, and shall be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Chandler. Well, for the past few months, this summer, I guess, we've, we've decided to look at the, uh, this really obscure, strange Old Testament book called Zechariah. And if there's, if there's any passage in this book that even has a shot at being remotely familiar or, uh, 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 you know, that, that you've heard it before, it might be this one. And so uh, this, this may, be, may be the most famous passage of the, the book, just because it's such a strange book. But... Um, what is really at the center of this passage is this declaration of a coming king, that there's this royal hero who's going to come and who's going to save his people and establish justice and bring flourishing to the world once again. Uh, Fleming Rutledge is a, kind of a fairly well-known Episcopal priest and author and uh, preacher, and in one of her sermons... She talks about how when she was in seminary in the 1970s, that the idea of kingship in Christian thought was, was being called into question. And the reason being was that, you know, a king is by definition a man. And so the idea of, okay, here you have a man ruling over other people, but especially women, that feels a little icky. It feels a little patriarchy-y and a little... Like, you know, toxic masculinity. And so, but, but she was saying the point was actually not just the kind of the gender dynamic, but just the fact that there's anybody ruling over anybody else was, was really the problem. And so here's what she said. She said, quote, everything was supposed to be egalitarian and communal. Everybody's equal. Everybody gets a prize. No more rulers, no more lords, no more kings. And so she's basically saying, you know, back in the 70s, it was this hierarchy of power that kind of offended our modern sensibilities of equality and democracy. And, but the reality is this, and this is not just a debate that took place in the 70s. This is a modern debate as well, that uh, there's certain pockets of the 
modern church or even kind of in academic circles that have stripped away this language about Jesus particularly as a king. We, we are um, much more comfortable with him being a teacher or a moral exemplar or even a revolutionary, but, but uh, king feels uncomfortable for us. And yet, um, at the center of this passage, and I think you could argue really at the center of the Bible, is the hope of a coming king. Look at, look at how it begins. Verse 9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. And so the question is why? Why this invitation to shout and celebrate and, and to rejoice? And it's in the next thing. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. And so really at the center of this passage is the good news of a coming king. And the question I want us to consider this morning is why is that good news, especially if it might offend our modern, you know, democratic sensibilities? I want to give you two reasons. Because this coming king is different than you might think, and this coming king is better than you might imagine. So he's different than you might imagine, and he's better than you could imagine. So let's... Let's look first about how this king is different, how it's different than you might imagine, or, or, because this, the, the vision that we have here is of a king that is unlike any king that the world has ever seen before. And you see this in this really odd juxtaposition of uh, characteristics. So, so on the one hand, what I want you to see is that this king has absolute authority and absolute power. He is unashamedly in charge and not embarrassed over it. If you jump down to verse 16, it compares God's people to a flock of sheep. It says, on that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. It's this image of a shepherd over a flock of sheep. And if you have a pen of sheep, you know that that's, that's not a democracy. The shepherd is the one that's in charge. The shepherd calls the shots. The shepherd is the one that's in control. In fact, it, it even gets even kind of more intense. Look at verse 10. It says, his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth, which shows you this is not a tribal leader. This is not a king that's just like a local authority. This is someone whose, whose kingdom goes from sea to sea, as the passage says, to the ends of the earth. This is world domination. This is a king that has taken over the planet. And, um, you know, what, what I want you to see is that, you know, the kingdom of God is, uh, it's not America. It's not Europe. It's not even the West. It's Earth. Now, you hear this kind of first idea of here's this king with absolute power. He's in control over every human being on the entire planet. And there's something about that that, we get very suspicious about because people in authority, there's a million examples of where people in authority have abused their power, have abused their position of power to advantage themselves over at the expense of the people underneath them. Where, where you down there, I'm going to make you suffer to benefit me up here. There's like bazillion examples of this. There are, of course, kings and emperors and politicians that have done this. There are uh, church leaders that have done this. There are uh, teachers and police and parents 
that have done this. There's a million examples of people in, in positions of, a pow of power that have abused it. And so I think, that, you know, I get it. There's, it's right of us to kind of like get uncomfortable with this language of, oh, here's this king with absolute power, but keep going. Because there's this odd, very odd juxtaposition of this next characteristic. Look at how verse 9 continues. He's humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, I don't think I really um, grasped how ridiculous this image is until I really studied this this week because, you know, kings rode on top of stallions, on war horses. And this is a king that's riding on a donkey. Now, donkeys were used as, like a, as a service animal. They would be in the fields. They would transport stuff. This is not a kingly, you know, mode of transportation. But on top of that, this is not just a normal donkey. This is a colt, a foal of a donkey, which means this is a young, like, miniature-sized donkey. You know, if you've ever gone horseback riding, you know how there's kind of all the big normal horses for the adults, and then there's, like, two miniature little ponies for the kitties to ride on, and they're named Tater Tot and um, Buttons. And, um, but that's the image. I mean, can you imagine George Washington charging into battle on a pony named Pop-Tart? I mean, it's like, it's, 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 this, it's a ridiculous image. In fact, this is what's so astounding about this um, image, because it, it just kind of blows up all of our categories. You remember the... Um, movie Aladdin, when Aladdin, one of his wishes is for him to be transformed into Prince Ali as he makes his kind of massive entrance into Agrabah, and uh, what, what does he do? He rides on top of an elephant, and he has this entourage of people singing and dancing, and they're, they're, they're shouting to everybody that he's strong as 10 regular men, definitely. And they're, they're, they're like, look how awesome this guy is. And they're just, he's just flexing his wealth and his status. And there's this parade of peacocks and camels. And he's got 95 white Persian monkeys. He's got the monkeys. He's got the monkeys. And it's this, it's this big, all this pomp and circumstance to make the point. Look how awesome, strong, and impressive I am. And so, but what you have here in Zechariah 9 is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and there's no parade, there's no pomp and circumstance, and he's riding on a steed that's fit for a hobbit. It's, it's a confusing image because I feel like it's sending mixed signals. You, you see this and you're like, wait, okay, are you this powerful general that is going to take over the world, or are you this nonviolent hippie? Because you're kind, of, it's, you're kind of saying two things at the same moment. But here's where you have a king that is unlike anything that you can imagine. Here you have a king that is royal and powerful and yet unpretentious and humble. You have a king that is mighty and at the same time lowly. You have a king that is omnipotent and, at the same time, a servant. And so what you really have here is finally, okay, here is somebody in a position of power who doesn't abuse it. Here is somebody with all might and all authority and yet uses his authority not to advantage himself over at the expense of people underneath him. He lowers himself. He disadvantages himself to bless and to benefit the people that are underneath him. 
Now, of course, 500 years after this bizarro prophecy oracle thing, Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem and he intentionally orchestrates it for the disciples to go and to get him a colt of a foal of a donkey. He requests, I want you to go and get a small miniature little donkey. And he rides on top of that and makes his way into Jerusalem. And what is he doing? He's not only fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9, but he is announcing to the world, I am the long-awaited king that everybody has hoped for. I'm the king of kings and I'm the lord of lords, and yet I'm a servant. I'm a different kind of king than you are expecting. And and you see this. You see this bizarro juxtaposition even in Jesus' life because on the one hand, he seems to possess unbridled power. He raises people from the dead. He casts out demons. He, he, he stops a hurricane with just a word. I mean, he kind of comes across like a Marvel character at times. He's just like, he's so unworldly powerful, and yet he's not born in a royal palace. He's born in a barn. And he says in Mark chapter 10, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. What kind of a king says that? What kind of a king shows up and says, hey, I am here, but I'm not here so that you can serve me. I'm here to serve you. And what does he do? He stoops down and he washes people's feet. That's not kingly behavior. That's not even like middle class behavior. That's servant class, bottom rung behavior. This is somebody who looks at and he gives his time and he gives his attention to the kind of people that the rest of the world wanted nothing to do with. He actually looks at, speaks to, and dignifies sexual minorities and the poor and children, which were, you know, written off. He, he's, he, he uses his resources to feed the hungry. This is a king that is so different than you might have imagined because here you have absolute power and absolute authority, but he doesn't use it to benefit him. He uses it to benefit the people that are underneath him unlike anything the world's ever seen. He's different than you um, might imagine, but here's the second thing. He's also better than you could imagine. And what I want to do is I want to show you just two things from this passage that it says that this king, that King Jesus is going to do. And the first thing that it says is that Jesus is going to save those who can't save themselves. He's going to save those who can't save themselves. Look at verse 11. It says, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Now, this is kind of an interesting image. A waterless pit was basically a well that was dug in a ground. It just doesn't happen to have water in it. So you think about just a giant hole in the ground with really steep sides that would have been coated in plaster, and it would have collected rainwater, and that's what they would have used for water. But if it doesn't have water in it, it kind of functions as a makeshift prison. If you're familiar with the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, this is what Joseph's brothers threw him in. It was a waterless pit because when you're in the bottom of this waterless pit, you can't climb your way out. It's too, it's too steep. You're stuck. You're helpless. You're in a position where you cannot save yourself. And this is saying Jesus has come to rescue those who can't rescue themselves. Jesus has come to go down into the pit and pull people out. And so it's this picture of humanity that's imprisoned, and only Jesus can save us. In fact, we just sang about it in the song 
right before I got up here, and can it be, in verse 4, it says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound, bound up in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, and I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. This is the imagery of Jesus coming to save us, to break us out of prison, to break our chains. This is a picture of individual personal salvation. He says it in verse 16, on that day, the Lord their God will save them. He comes to save people who can't save themselves. But there's a second thing. He also comes to heal a world that can't heal itself. He comes to heal a world that can't heal itself. Look at verse 10. It says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. Now, this is saying all of these instruments, uh, all of these items were used as, um, for instruments in combat. War horses, chariots, bows and arrows. He's saying, I'm going to break them, cut them off, and remove them. They're, they're, war is over as we know it when King Jesus comes in all of his fullness. Because this is, this is the solution that the world has always given to its problems, is we, we will solve this problem through power, through violence, through force. And this vision is saying when Jesus comes in all of his fullness, he's gonna, it's like he's going to set up this giant dumpster and all the assault rifles, all the tanks, all the missiles, all the bombs are going in that because they're not needed anymore because he has come to declare peace. War is over. In fact, um, look at verse 15. I love this verse. It says, The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. Now, sling stones were stones that were slung in a slingshot. <laughs> if you, I mean, this, is, you know, this was an actual weapon back then. You'd get a, get a stone from off the ground, and you put it in a little thing and swing it, and you'd throw it, and it would hit people in the head. This is what little, little David did with Goliath, you remember? And uh, this is saying that the sling stones are no longer going to be used for slinging. They're going to be used to be treaded upon, meaning that here's this instrument for war, and it's going to be repurposed as gravel. It's going to be repurposed as cobblestone. War is over. It's this picture of flourishing, this picture of shalom. In fact, this is the language that's used at the very end. Look at verse 17. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. Flourishing. No more hunger, no more poverty, no more war. The world finally healed. Now, you step back, you, you step back and you think about these two things. It comes to save those who can't save themselves. It comes to heal those who can't heal themselves or heal a world that can't heal itself. You may not know this. You might know this. Um, the American church is largely divided in this moment, not just along political lines, but also theological lines. You've got conserv you know, theological conservatives and theological liberals over here, and the, the theological conservatives love to talk about how Jesus came to save those who can't save themselves. They love that first idea. Forgiveness, the blood of the lamb, Let's talk about it all. Let's, let's do evangelism. Let's do, just, let's do discipleship because justice, social justice, that feels like a waste of time. What we really need to be about is uh, uh, individual salvation, evangelism, discipleship, prayer. 
And then you have uh, people on the other side um, that like the second point. No, Jesus did not come to save individuals. He came to, to, you know, to heal systems. And so let's, we're wasting our time with all the substitutionary atonement, blood of the lamb stuff. Uh, we need to get out there and we need to confront unjust social systems. We need to engage our city. We need to care for the poor. This is what Jesus is about, the kingdom coming. And so you have both of these, both sides, throwing bricks at each other. And the question is, okay, well, which one's right? Uh, they both are. And they're both wrong. Because Jesus came to do both. Which means, however you find yourself, if you happen to even find yourself kind of on this theological spectrum, if you're over here, if you're over here, this means that Jesus is bigger than you might have thought. Which also means that Jesus is better than you might have thought. Jesus is a fully orbed, robust, holistic savior. He cares about individual salvation and he cares about the structures of the world. He came to save those who can't save themselves and he came to heal a world that cannot heal itself. This is the good news of what Jesus has come to do. And the big question is, okay, how does he, how does he do that? How does he accomplish that? <coughs> and it's strange, but again, we're dealing with a king that's different than you could imagine. So look at how he does it. He does it by dying. Look at verse 11. Why will he set the prisoners free? Because of the blood of the covenant of my covenant with you. I will free you. I will heal the world because of the blood, because of my blood. That's what Jesus came to do. He enters into Jerusalem on a donkey, and it looked like, wow, you cannot get more humble than that. You can't get lower than that. And yet he humbles himself even further, humbles himself into the dust to die on a cross. As he is dying on the cross, he is being beaten to a pulp. He is being humiliated. In fact, they put this um, crown of uh, thorns on his head, not just to torture him, not just to make him feel pain, but also to shame him, to mock him, to say, here's what we think about your kingdom, Mr. King. It's a joke. You are so weak. You're a failure. You can't even save yourself, much less save us. They totally obliterate him. They totally write him off. And that was the strategy. That was the game plan, to win. And you think, that doesn't make any sense. What football team says, I've got a great strategy of how we're going to win this game. Let's go in there and let the other team destroy us and just crush us into the dirt. Then we'll win. It's insanity. How does that work? Why is that the game plan? I want you to think about this. Um, I recently saw this... YouTube video, a little, a little snippet on the YouTubes of uh, Ryan Reynolds. You know Ryan Reynolds, Deadpool, free guy, uh, et cetera. And uh, he's being interviewed by Dave Letterman on Dave Letterman's new kind of interview format, My Next Guest Needs No Introduction. And Ryan Reynolds is telling the story of when he was 12 years old and that he um, wanted to get an earring. And he was, <laughs> he was telling Letterman, uh, I just thought it was cool. I thought it was rebellious to get an earring. And Letterman's kind of laughing. He's like, why did you think that was like the cool thing to do? And, and Ryan Reynolds goes, uh, I don't know. Wham was really popular at the time, for those of you who know what he's referring to. But anyway, he goes on and tells the story and says, okay, so I um, told my older brothers, I'm going to go get an earring today. And they looked at me and they said, if you come home with an earring, our father is going to destroy you. 
Like, it's going to be a bloodbath at dinner tonight if you do that. And uh, but he doesn't care. He's a rebellious 12-year-old. And so he goes out, and he, he goes in and gets an earring, and has his, one of his friend's mom sign the papers for him. And he comes home with an earring. And when he, when he goes into dinner that night, he feels the tidal wave of anxiety, of knowing, here I'm about to collide with my father's wrath. And so he's, uh, he's sitting down, and he says he, he can feel his face turning, you know, flush with heat, with the impending doom of, of what's coming. He says he's looking down at his lap, and he's saying sweat is literally dripping off of his face onto his lap, and he can feel his father's gaze turn to him, and his father utters this word that I cannot repeat in the um, pulpit, but it's this, this word of just utter disappointment, utter disgust, and, and he just, he feels the guilt and the weight of it all, and then he looks up, and he looks around the table, and all three of his brothers had earrings in their ears as well. And when he tells that story, Dave Letterman's face is transformed, and he's blown away by the delight of this, by the wonder of, that's amazing. And then here's what Ryan Reynolds says to kind of wrap it all up. He says, they had gotten an earring to save me. It was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my life. Now, if you can find beauty and be moved by older brothers who are willing to suffer with you and for you, how much more? Beautiful, how much more moving when you have the king of kings who is willing to suffer with and for you. When the king is on his throne with all glory and has, deserves all the praise of heaven, who leaves the highest point to come all the way down to the bottom for you to bear your punishment, to receive your shame, to be humiliated in your place, when that gets into your bloodstream, that's what moves you. And you know what begins to happen when, when your heart starts to get moved by the beauty of that, you have been officially conquered by Jesus. Not by force, but by love. His humiliation, his suffering, him losing is what conquers you. And it will conquer the entire world until every square inch is taken over by his redemptive love. In fact, there's this quote, I think it's amazing, I put it in the front of your bulletin, by Napoleon Bonaparte. He said, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires, but on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. When you know you've been conquered by Jesus' love, you find him so delightful, so good, so beautiful that you're willing to die for him in return because you, you, you realize, I owe, him, I owe him everything. In fact, that's how this passage kind of ends. In verse 17, it says, For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. If you can look at Jesus and what he has done and what he promises to do, and if that's not what bubbles out of your heart of how great is his goodness, he is, so much, he is so good. He is so much better than I thought he was. He is so much more beautiful than, he thought he was, than I thought he was. If that's not what's coming out of your heart, I dare say you may have missed him. You may have misunderstood him because he is this good. This is a king unlike the world has, has ever seen. So my invitation for you this morning 
is to look at Jesus and the upside down, the upside down nature of his kingdom. Look at his sacrifice. Look at the way that he's willing to give himself for the people like us at the bottom. Meditate on that until that's what starts to bubble out of your heart for how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Amen. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you give us a king that is not um, a totalitarian tyrant, but you give us a king that's a servant who is willing to disadvantage himself for the sake of people that don't deserve it. I pray that this story of your kingship, of your goodness, uh, would so um, get into our hearts that we wouldn't just believe in you in some sort of cognitive way of checking a box, but that our hearts would actually be moved, that we would say, how great is your goodness? How, how great is your beauty? That our hearts would actually get activated into worship where we would find ourselves compelled to love you and to live in light of your kingdom. Do that work in us in only the way that you can. We pray all this in Jesus' name.